You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Today, on a... <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry. Look at Corey. Corey's so annoyed. He's so another. annoyed. Okay. Go for it. Today, on another name for everything, we continue our conversation on values. And we're doing something a little bit different this season. As Bri and I take a few moments to kind of share with you our process about how these questions came to be and how they relate to our lives and we, what we were bringing and what we were hoping to bring to our conversation with Richard. As we pick up where we left off on values, one of the things that really, um, that, that I am struck by is how values tend to be weaponized. And so you'll hear us talking about that. And also, even just thinking about how growing up in the Christian tradition, values always felt like something external that you had to put on, like a garment or right. something, in a way that didn't really feel authentic. Yeah, and I think that's part of why I felt so much joy in this conversation, was we were trying to redefine how values could impact our life, and they wouldn't have to be just that exterior garment that we'd put on to fit in the club, but rather live from something more in- internalized. Yeah, I think it's so important for me to feel a sense of authenticity in what I'm doing in my spiritual practice yeah. or what I'm what I'm hoping to live into aspirationally. If I can't connect the dots between the goal and something that is already authentically a spark in my own heart, then it does feel forced. It totally feels fake. It feels like it's artificial or like I'm performing. Yeah. And this is is so helpful, I think, because the way that Richard was able to frame values put it in touch with that that spark in your own heart to say, okay, what is already taking shape inside of you? And then how can you fan the flame of what's there to keep going and to keep growing? Yeah, especially in, in light of, you know, life happens, life occurs in ways where suffering finds us, or sometimes we unfortunately seek out suffering in, in, in costume. And how values can help us on those rocky those rocky roads where we're just trying to, in some ways, survive, but also continue to orientate our our life trajectory on a path that feels well, of one of integrity and authenticity to this path that we're committed to. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the gifts for me in our conversation here together and the things that came up as we were trying to think, how would this most resonate with folks who tune in uh, as ways that it didn't feel like separate from their own lives, whatever mm-hmm. whatever is going on in the midst of their, their joys and and trials and struggles. Um, This seems to have an opportunity to set uh, an arc from here to the end of the season of of how these values relate to our entire conversation here on Another Name for Everything. Yeah, that's right. In many ways, we're trying to figure out where the rubber meets the road between these big metaphysical ideas that feel so huge and then the the very mundane day-to-day reality of our lives. So... Let's take a listen now to our conversation with Richard, part two of Values. All right, so Richard, we want to continue this conversation that we've started here on values and how do we integrate this into our daily life and our way of being in the world. So that we kick it off with, you know, one of the things that those of us who grew up in the church, we have an allergy around the idea of trying to be good or trying to look good from the outside in instead of the inside out. Yes. What is the difference between aspirational creeds and lived reality? 
In other words, how would, do we have the integrity in living out values instead of just talking about them? It seems to be one of the things that we have, um, haven't quite learned how to do. How do we just live out of this place of value versus taking what others have put upon us or trying to just fit the mold of what it looks like to be good? You know, this is, I think, why I keep going back to the falling upward thesis of first half of life and second half of life. I don't think you have much choice in the first half of life except some degree of how do I look. (laughs) So don't hate yourself for it. How is this coming across? Even Jesus, who do people say that I am, you know? It's you don't know how to read yourself except from the outside in. So don't hate yourself. The integrity that emerges usually in your 40s. You're not there yet, I'm I know. So close. Just about. <laughs> <laughs> Is you, you get tired of that or you realize the insufficiency of that. This preoccupation with what I'm going to call the horizontal. The uh, looking good instead of being good. Now, part of the reason is the burden of being good is you have to let go of how you look to really sometimes be good. You've heard me tell the stories of of um, Francis when they started calling him Il Santo, coming into Assisi with the board, and he and Brother Francis uh, just seesawing all day because he wanted people not to think of him as a saint. Or Philip Neri, who was the priest of Rome, who had come in holding a bottle of wine. I don't know if he drank it, I don't care. Uh, and telling rather off-color jokes. Because uh, they, they wanted to rid themselves of this need to appear good. Mm. Now maybe that was just a stage in their own growing up. I don't know. Uh, what stage that represents. But I know it's a breaking from the first half of life or one of the earlier tasks in life that wants people to like you too much, wants to be successful too much, wants to be pleasing too much. And we've done a good thing in giving a word to that. We call it codependency. Uh, Americans psychologize everything, but there's a real gift to it, to recognize what codependency means. You're codependent on other people's image of you. And so you you play to that. It's almost impossible not to when you're young. But you will get tired of it. And you'll say, why did I really do that? What's really going on when I do that? And those are the questions, I think, of your late 30s and 40s, that you seek a greater integrity, and you let the likability factor fall away. Now, after I finish that, did I answer the question, actually? Don't, you don't have to say I did, if yeah. I didn't. Well, come back at me. Yeah, well, I, I think you're getting at this question of getting how do we it. live with integrity, in integrity, yeah. to wanting to live these values. Yeah, and oftentimes it's almost like um, 
the image that's coming to my mind is like we put our values up and ahead a little bit yeah. because oh, yeah, it's, that, it's I, aspirational, mm. right? Like we know we want to live into this, Yes, but to do it in a way that has kind of an authentic truth to it. Yeah. Like this is coming from, so it reminds me of what you were saying in the last episode about how you can't fake it. Like it has to be, yeah. it has to come from within in order for it to be authentic. But it's still just beyond us, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be motivated yeah, to continue. Yeah, that's it. You've got to... Do, I like your word aspirational. That's the North Star again. You have to choose. I mean, that's what I did when at 19 I took my first vows. Mm-hmm. Those were aspirational values that set me on a course that I failed in a thousand times. But you have to have those to uh, set you on a course. Now, if you don't fall into the thing of of hating yourself when you don't, which I did plenty of times, uh, they still, it's like when you see a mountain climber throwing his pick higher. Uh, higher is dangerous. <laughs> but uh, anyway, you've got to have something that pulls you forward. Mm. And I think we see the lack of that mm-hmm. in secular culture today where there's really no aspirational values in our governments, in the ordinary secular crowd, beyond looking good, Mm -hmm. making money. Right. Yeah. uh, So those are their aspirational values, but they're just not very high, high level. (laughs) It seems like any true teaching... True spiritual teaching should pull, should call you beyond where you are while also tenderly holding you in that space. Perfect, perfect, Paul. That's it. While holding you, knowing you're not there yet. Because to sink into self-hatred is actually an ego response. Mm. Why are you so shocked that you are not perfect? Yeah. You understand? <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, I'm used to it now. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, I want to stay on this because yeah. that's yeah. like... Whew. That's all of us. It's so... Yeah, yeah. but it, it's like, how do we, as we look at values and it's aspirational, how, how do we not... Um, Become judgmental with ourselves. Yep, yep, yep. And beat ourselves up when we don't, you know, live into it perfect. That's like a thing. My whole life I can feel how I have fallen into the pit of that kind of self-judgmental inner narrative of you didn't do that perfectly. Any of us who start religious or idealistic are subject to that. Yeah. but mo- nobody told us that the self-hatred is ego-based, too. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good, because then it gives you a place to say, okay, the right relationship when I screw up is to, to somewhat be like, of course. Yeah. Of course. Like, that's a posture of humility. Of course. Yeah. Anthony DeMello said, I'm an ass, you're an ass. <laughs> <laughs> and when you can just, yeah, here Richard goes again, uh, yeah. and you're not shocked by that, then you're free. Oh. And you're free. Uh, but it's the price you pay for being aspirational. Mm. If you didn't have that, you have this flatland secular culture we have today where there really are no values beyond personal success. Egocentricity, grand egocentricity. So don't hate yourself for having them, even though there's a risk 
of, of egocentricity with them. So that's why God allows you to fail. Yeah. Well, yeah. Some of us on staff last night went to go see the, the new Ram Das documentary. Oh, tell me. And the, the director was there. And uh, he said something that I thought was so poignant where he said he tries to look as, at every new failure as more adorable than the previous one. More adorable. And he said it was such a, a playful a, spirit. Like I just think about humor and then that approach to failure. What a neat word. I wonder if you could talk to about that. There seems to be humor plays that role between the disconnect yeah. between how you think you look and how you actually are. And so when you do have those moments of adorable failures, that you can approach yeah. them with that levity and lightness and yes. not get rehooked of like going to that self hatred mode or mm. looking down upon yourself. Mm. How I mean, because I know you don't think you're funny, but a lot <laughs> of us, not, I'm not. A lot of us you enjoy your actually. your humor. Well, um, I hope so. I don't. <laughs> well, see, there I am again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How has laughter and humor helped you in that way? When you think of you know the any stumbling or falling that occurs and the internal monologue kicks in. I think my early years in intense. Franciscan community with my peers. We were all the same age for years, going through new one another backward and forward. Any guy who couldn't endure uh, being poked at, being mocked for his eccentricities, left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, Franciscanism taught me that. I remember once when I was giving a Benedict, not to pick on the good Benedictines, but I was giving a Benedictine retreat in Illinois. And for some terrible reason, I used the word shit. <laughs> Forgive me. My mother told me never to use that word. But I don't know. I thought it was appropriate in the usage. It wasn't said out of anger. What a scandal. <laughs> uh, but the prior, the prior is the second one in order of authority after the abbot. And he Knock, knock, knock. Very stern face. Read the name of the rose. If you, did you ever read the name of the rose? Oh, God, that's a good novel. And this will ruin it for you, but the, the, the villain at the end is the monk who can never smile. Oh. Who can never smile. Our president never smiles. Mm. Forgive me. Uh, he knocked on my door. He says, Father... We're, we're enjoying your retreat, but we're gentlemen here. And we would very much prefer if you wouldn't use that word. And I said, what word? He said, you know, that four-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. And they were Swiss, you know. They were not just Benedictine, but they were Swiss. I, I have so many Swiss friends, and I have so many Benedictine friends, so I say that with hesitation. But it is an example of how um, culture wins out. Mm -hmm. Culture over Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, and anybody, I would make it an absolute statement. Anybody who cannot allow people to tease them, like you allow me all that. Well, both of you do, you know, really. Uh, you got to worry about them. They're, they're always hiding some major shadow material. And they're afraid you're teasing their shadow. Mm. Now, what you said, oh, does he really believe that about me? Is that half true? <laughs> so they can never laugh at themselves. Mm. 
Now, there is another kind of laughter that's nervous laughter. Uh, that's fill the gaps with laughter. Right. I've seen that at staff meetings where the whole room is just filled with laughter that means nothing. And maybe you have to do that to get through the meeting. You know? <laughs> but, <laughs> but there's a, a laughter that uh, is genuine, um, cajoling of the shadow and enjoying yours and others uh, imperfection, mm. not not hating it, not trying to punish it, not trying to expose it, enjoying it. And your genuine friends can do that with you. I love doing it with Michael. Yeah, that's what joy. <laughs> <laughs> that I like that you said enjoy that enjoyment of it because it is when you center on joy, there is delight. That can hold That's our imperfection right. That's right. with mm. so much softness and tenderness, like, oh, <laughs> how sweet. There you are, Brie, doing your thing that you do when you, you know, it's like there's a, there's a sweetness about it. Like, I think about how I, how I enjoy my kids, right? Sure, and I'm sure. not, you know, when they, when they do things or they don't live up to my hopes or standards, I'm not harping on them in a negative way. Mm, I, I can fully accept where and how they are. So it's helpful to think about how we can do that with ourselves when we're not living into these values perfectly or when we misstep, if we can have a little bit of that humor and delight to say, oh, this is what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. Isn't it tender? Mm -hmm. It's like precious. Speaking of that that, uh, tender, beautiful, vulnerable place where we, we learn to be okay with where our inner lives and outer lives match or don't, um, I was recently looking through your book, Eager to Love, Ooh. which I love that book, by the way. Um, in, in it, you say that Francis and Claire found both their inner and outer freedom by structurally living on the edge of the inside of both church and society. But here's the thing I'm fascinated by what you said. You said, too often people seek either inner or outer freedom, yes, but seldom yes. do people find both. Seldom. And I'm so intrigued by this mm. way that you're describing inner and outer, um, the inside and outside of integrity. And I wonder if you could describe the pitfalls of how we tend to only seek one instead of seeking the harmony of both. That is really, I believe, a true statement in my almost 50 years of working with people. I think it has to do with temperament. And that's what got me involved in things like the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs, to help you recognize that you're temperamentally inclined to start on the outside or the inside. And both of them have their weakness. People who are extroverted, for example, will start on the outside. People who are sevens will start on the outside. You know, And it works so well for them because they're good at it that they see no reason to change. So... This is why I'm sure Teresa of Avila said the first mansion is self-knowledge. Now when you offer this to especially conservative Christians, they will love to dismiss it and say it's just psychology. You can tell they're terrified of self-knowledge. They don't want any psychological language. They don't want their anthropology to match their theology. Do you see They don't want human love and divine love to be teachers of one another. 
or self-love and human love and divine love to all operate on the same circuit. That's finally the goal. But uh, it's very, very common. Even I see this in the new conservative young priests. They just, they hate the anagram. They hate any typology, any discussion of feelings. Uh, They try to have a theology with no corresponding psychology. Any, Any recognition of their own filters, their own biases, their own preferences, their own where they're closed down. Uh, you don't recognize those filters. You just don't go very far in the spiritual life because all you see is, frankly, yourself in very low-level form over and over and over again and interpret the outer world in terms of your own biases Mm -hmm. and your own filters. So, um, and, And we don't have to just go to Teresa of Avila we go to Jesus. I mean, when he talks about the um, the shadow self, seeing it in your neighbor, not seeing it in yourself, he's being an astute Jungian psychologist, really. He, he really gets our, our the, his whole use of the language of the eye, the eye with which you see. So um, this is not mere psychology. It's when theology comes together with self-knowledge. And if you do not know yourself as an image of God, you can't know God because there's no synchronicity, not synchronicity, similarity between the seer and what is seen. And there has to be. If there's not a similarity, we're thinking of entitling next year's Conspire Conference, Seeing from Oneness. Mm. I really like it. You probably haven't even heard this yet. Um, But seeing from oneness implies every part of me is integrated, Mm. is forgiven, is accepted, is allowed. And once you stand in that oneness, you can not only see oneness over there, but you will create oneness over there just by being who you are. Uh, so maybe that's the change that changes everything. People who see from oneness. Uh, and that's that creating that inner oneness, not that it's you know, totally sequential, but I think is the task of the first half of life, finding the beginnings of that oneness. Tasting it. Tasting it, yes. Yeah. Good. And it's almost as if, um, but w- one of the things I appreciate about what you just said is that without turning within, without doing that inner work, we're not really able to see that we are living values and are living uh, truths and worldviews that are almost put, they're put there by yes. by the dominant 
you know, culture around us and we don't see it. Mm-mm. We think we're such individuals and that we're, oh, we oh do. no, I'm living my unique <laughs> life. Very people who think they're right. so original. And in reality, <laughs> I don't know anybody like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking this about, Richard. This is a four on the Enneagram. <laughs> <laughs> I think they all know that by now. <laughs> but just, you know, the, the, the importance of, of that inner journey is that it helps us become acquainted with the different voices that are operating That's in there. That's right. So that we can begin to discern. That's right. You know, all right. Where's where's this this the deepest selfhood, the selfhood that is connected from that unit of place as you described. Mm. That's so well said. And I think on this journey of self knowledge, that what also comes along is is suffering. Whether it's suffering of what arises mm-hmm. as you look at the hard parts of your own life, or just the intrusions of life that that come in that are mm-hmm. unexpected. And even if I think seen from that oneness, right, suffering still arrives and it still is just a part of the day-to-day reality. And so, Richard, in this thread of conversation on values, how do you see suffering in relationship to values? Like I'm thinking in particular about when life throws you curveballs or a rough patch of road and you're trying to stay aligned to those values because you see them as that North Star. They're going to continue to help shape how uh, you are on this journey of becoming how do you relate to suffering so that you don't lose sight of those values? Because part of what comes up for me, I'm thinking about when I have a, a misstep or I feel like I'm not aligned to my values, I almost go deeper into that suffering when I was trying to alleviate it, perhaps, by not being true to that value. Does that make sense what I'm oh, trying to get to? Of course it does. You know the quote I'm going to use from Therese, again, my, my spiritual friend. Whoever is willing, listen to every word, whoever is willing to serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to herself, she used the feminine, will make a pleasant place of shelter for Jesus. That's the quote. And Scott Peck told me personally when we had lunch together, well, he says it at the beginning of People of the Lie. He says that line from a Catholic saint might be the most brilliant line of psychology I've ever read. And he said what most people will not do is serenely bear the trial of being displeasing to themselves. They project that displeasure on other people they con- convict other people of their faults, of the very thing they hate themselves for. They hate in other people. It's called scapegoating. And then how dearly she draws it together. We become, this is a home in which Jesus can live. Because there's nothing expelled. There's no spirit of rejection or denial or expulsion or punishment will be a pleasant place of shelter for Jesus. How did this uneducated French girl come to... When That's not the way the French Catholic Church thought. You want to talk about perfectionism. It was sick if you have a French spirituality of, of the 18th century. Forgive me, French people. <clears throat> but um, we're all evolving in this understanding of spirituality. But it is the reason, first Francis and then Therese are my favorite saints, that they both, against all expectations, learn to love their shadow 
their woundedness. Uh, for, for Francis, it was, I, wanna, I wear raggedy clothes because I want to look on the outside like I know I am on the inside. And he wouldn't wear a nice trim habit like I do. That uh, was all cleaned and pressed. <laughs> uh, no, I got to let people know what I'm real. That absolute acceptance. <clears throat> you, you all know his favorite prayer. It was said in his earliest biography. He would spend the whole night saying, Who are you and who am I to God? Who are you and who am I? And in his marvelous study of mysticism, um, what's his name? <laughs> the English, Baron von Hugel. Baron von Hugel says he considers that the most perfect possible prayer. Mm-hmm. Who are you and who am I? And to say it your whole life, you can't get better than that. So, do you feel the open-endedness yeah. of it? Yeah. It's, I don't know who I am yet. And I'm ready to let you reveal it to me. And I don't know who you are yet. But I'm praying here naked before you and letting your love show itself to me. Those are the people who experience divine love. Because they haven't got a preconceived notion of what divine love is. And then it can flow in, you see. And Trez was the same way. Yeah, you don't get much better than the biography of of Therese of Lisieux. Mm. And remember, she died at 29, 26? Quite young. One of them, one of the 20s. Well, in the examples you're using of Therese and Francis, what I see is, and, and probably as a whole, why we look to the mystics and the saints and the prophets is because we see examples of people who are willing to live their values all the way through. And to recognize, maybe in a a flip point to what you're saying, Paul, to recognize that suffering is part of that package, Mm. that it, it, what we're signing up for isn't, um, this isn't an easy like, oh, I'd like to live a simple life, done, you know, an escalator to oneness, right? Mm. But that that there's somehow suffering, and this is not to glorify suffering, but to say that that our ego is going to go through a process that feels like dying as we let go of everything that we've been told is reality on behalf of, of embracing the real reality. It's, a, it's like a refinement process that involves suffering in a way. You answer my question so kindly with a, you know, very kindly telling me I didn't answer. No, you I did. really didn't. No, you I didn't. Did. I meant to, and I but I danced around it, and you got right to the yeah. It is suffering to serenely bear the trial. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It is suffering. Some people might miss that connection, and you made it very well. Thank you. Uh, it's always true virtue will always somehow be a humiliation for your egocentricity because mm-hmm. you know you didn't do it perfectly. and Or if you can claim you did it, you know it was by grace that you did it. You see? So you can't claim the victory. Yeah. It's so subtle. It's so... Uh, that's why interiority, quiet prayer... Times of solitude are so important. 
or Francis's whole night in the cave. What was he doing? He wasn't saying Hail Marys over and over again. He was saying, who are you and who am I? And waiting for an answer. Mm. And maybe waiting an hour. And then something good always flowed in. Something always much better than a, an answer you can concoct or create. I really love that line, to bear serenely. Mm. Serenely like that, bear the trial. That is, it's beautiful and it's helpful because I think my, my question is in how we often turn values into weapons of, <coughs> of judgment right. and yeah. righteousness. You know, and you see that so much in our country right we now, do. right? <coughs> this way of saying, you know, the, this idolatry of values that isn't about serenely living into them. No, But almost good. creating <coughs> n- new exclusive kind of communities of of like tribe, tribal kind of yeah. this is us and that's, you know, there's an <coughs> us and then there's a them. That I suppose the question is how do we hold on to our values or put them in front of us without becoming self-righteous about it or without using it as a tool to judge others? It's very hard. And that's why it takes form on both the left and the right. And on the left is even more devious because they feel they've outrighted the conservatives. And I'm glad we created that word political correctness or mean greens on spiral dynamics. It's even more hidden in liberal, progressive, and academic people. Their need to be right. Their need to, because I've studied. You know, I'm smart. I read books. So they're their righteousness, precisely because it is a little more sophisticated, is a little better hidden. And it's it's not wrong to be right. Let me say that. It's the need to be right and the need to think of yourself as right and the desire to ping, you know, zing that other person by, uh, you know, your little act of political correctness, you know. And I've been burned by it enough over the years. Just people who, who uh, we call them gotcha moments. Mm, there's condescension in that, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I know they meant well. I'm so glad. But it was the protesting mind doesn't know how to not protest. So you'll often find this in, in uh, social justice people. <clears throat> They have gotten their energy for 10 years from correcting, 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 refining. And they've so operated out of that negative energy, they don't recognize it's negative energy. And it's a righteousness trip. That's a major conversion for all people on the left. Can you operate out of pure love? Yeah, it's all. It's like weaponizing truth. Weaponizing. There's a good word. There's a good word. Another name for everything will continue in a moment.
Is There Life After Doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org slash courage. Well, it, that the way you talk about devotion as an orientation of the heart that can recognize the sacred heart of Christ and mm. everyone and everything, mm. if that was really our inner stance, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to, or it would be antithetical for us to live in that kind of condescending way mm-hmm. of self-righteousness yes, 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 because yes. there's a there's a quiet <clears throat> humility that says i the sacred heart is in you and in you and in you therefore no matter what your values and your opinions like there's something sacred in you that i can learn from there's a so i don't know i feel like your 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 very value of devotion can almost help us have a different yeah, stance to our values yeah. does that make sense yeah. You know when you've met a person of devotion, don't you? They're not going to be doing the gotcha game. No, no gotcha. Even when they might be challenging you, they'll, they'll say it in such a soft, I wonder, Richard, if, if maybe we should try saying it this way. You know, they almost place it as a question to themselves mm. without any accusation. You've heard me say this, I know, before, but let's place it on this recording. Uh, Satan, mm. the word means the accuser. Mm. And the accusative instinct, the accuser of our brothers and sisters, has been cast down, the book of Revelation says. As long as we have any remnant of that accusing instinct that wants to, now we'd call it scapegoating, placing the blame over there, which is supposed to place me one step higher. They don't know they're doing that. They really don't know, but that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to find moral high ground by putting you down. It just takes growth and wisdom to not do that. And I can only say that because as a one, I did it plenty of times. And I bet I still do it. But it's no good. It's no good at all. It really closes down dialogue and discussion. It sours the, the recipe of dialogue. You know? It also shuts down growth. Yes, yes. Now I remain the defeated person because I called them Indians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you remain the victor because you're First Nations. Okay, now where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. It doesn't help. Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, as we explore the ways that we can live into our values without being self-righteous, there is still also the example again bearing how did what was that phrase bearing serenely, uh, serenely, serenely bearing. bearing the trial yeah. of being displeasing to yourself that yeah. it is a trial yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah that oh. that's there's something so radically countercultural oh. about oh. that and that's what Scott Peck said yeah yeah Paul and I were discussing this this element of 
people that we admire who have lived into their values in a countercultural way, but yet still remain faithful to bearing, you know, the, their own, their own stuff. And, um, I wonder if you could tell the story that you were telling me about Wendell Berry oh. and the oh. computer. Oh yes. That'll be good. Have you ever read that essay of his, why I won't own a computer? Yes. But years ago. Yeah. And apparently that was published in Harper's magazine and they got the most letters from readers ever in response to that. Because they were so Four. because they were upset that Wendell Berry was not going to own a computer. They were they were feeling judgment oh, on themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so they were weaponizing their own yes. their own stances, and they wow. were attacking every piece of his essay. And it's almost really? like they completely forgot the title of why I won't own a computer oh. because it was not aligned to his own values of simplicity. He couldn't fix it with, a, with simple tools, and a person of, of, re, of regular intelligence couldn't fix it on their own. These are all things that matter to him, and that the, the goods couldn't wow. be made locally. Wow. And so I'm always just amazed by when someone takes a countercultural stance like mm. that from a place of uh, their own set of values, how others will kind of glob on as a way to say, no, you can't do that because that's not who I am. They get threatened by They're it. They're threatened by other yeah. people's values. and. So I don't know, maybe that speaks to that question of how do we be in relationship to those whose values are different than ours, mm. but not be oppositional to where they're at. Does that make sense? Like yeah, I'm thinking about those who does. lean more in a conservative way or lean more in a progressive way, and those on the opposite end of the spectrum. How do we be in relationship without forcing our values upon them? Mm. <laughs> how do we, how do we? I, I don't know that I still have an answer. I've searched for it all my life, and so often I, I don't achieve it. Um, it's more inviting language than didactic language. Mm. As soon as I feel myself wanting to shake my finger like the school marm, um, then I know I'm moving into this didactic mode instead of the invitational mode. I wonder if, would it be better if, almost the asking of another question. And you've heard me enough, I don't always do that. Um, And maybe if you did it every time, no one would take it seriously. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah. All you know it when you hear it. Mm-hmm. You know when people are righteously standing above you, and uh, when people are lovingly standing with you by the energy of your language and the words that you choose. Uh, I'm yeah. laughing because I'm thinking of, let's just say hypothetically two lovers are having a fight hypothetical of course (laughs) and the ways in which you can you just it keeps escalating no i'm right no i'm right no but you did this and then you said that you know you just you keep going and going and going and then what is it about that one moment when one of you softens and just kind of like reaches out and touches the other and kind of has a little bit of a smile like oh hey hey I'm here. Can you feel me? Like we're fighting about something yeah. really stupid right now. And it it's making me think about this question because 
in a way, having a, a relationship with people whose values might be different than ours, it requires your values, Richard, of having an open heart, like this, the devotion that can see and be soft and put the heart first instead of ideas of the mind. Yeah. And to be in simplicity with that, to say, I don't know, and then to be devoted enough to the public virtue that recognizes being right isn't the most important thing, mm-hmm. but being connected is. And knowing isn't the most important thing. Someone wrote me just yesterday and I answered the email. Uh, They wanted to list the virtues that we should be offering our students. And the only one I added was we need the practices Mm. we should offer our students. Uh, A practice that would train us in not knowing and not needing to know. Could I commit myself for the rest, for the next three hours, into willingly being able to say, I don't know? Mm. I think a lot of people have never said that. Mm. And to notice your unwillingness to say it. I don't mean to not be helpful to other people. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But um, I think we should develop some. I don't know practices because mm. uh, it's really giving up control. It's mm. powerlessness. It's the first step of the 12 steps. And Western culture, Christian culture, capitalistic culture survives on control language. Mm. We've got to absent ourselves from that arena. And make it acceptable. It's that temptation to look good, right? Versus being good. Yeah, look good instead of being. The people who most succeed at it is your type. My nine friends. Oh, let's hear it. <laughs> All the praises. Here we go. <laughs> I, I, had, I lived in household with a young nine back in Cincinnati. Uh, John Jerling, if he's listening, I still remember you. And we had this big, long community process on what we thought New Jerusalem should be after Richard left. And then went on and on ad nauseam. And good old nine John Gerling, he gets his all typed out one sentence. A community that does not need to be important. That was wow. <laughs> Yeah. And he meant it. A community that does not need to be important. Wow. And I think we've got to say the same about the CAC, mm-hmm. you know. We're going to do the best we can and then let go of it. Mm-hmm. Um. It's so interesting, you know, and again, it's like this intersection between contemplation and action. And the ways in which if we just think about our action, if we're just focused on social justice, we do, we, it is easier to fall into the trap of self-importance of like, I'm going to fix the world this way. I'm going to, you know, we get caught up in that and in a desired outcome, yes. which is not the outcome that we desire or that we see of justice is good. But the ways that we can get stuck in that can become self-righteous That's right. because we forget this other modality of softening into I don't know, and I am one piece of the larger body of Christ. Therefore, it's not all up to me, and thank God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. That willfulness uh, of outcome 
that I mean, we see it in our politics, right? Like, oh my God! If if this isn't the outcome, then it's complete <laughs> failure. Or even just the nudging, the subtleties of life, and trusting that intuition of this is what I'm called to do right now, regardless of the outcome. And to your point about the CAC of what if we just became some small little local organization, mm. but we're faithful to that 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 mission? That yeah. would be, that would have to be okay. Be much better. Yeah. You know, in Gerald May's uh, wonderful book, I think it's Will and Spirit, uh-huh. he, he goes at great length to distinguish willfulness from willingness. Mm. It sounds like just a simple play on words, but he said what you see in the saint is willingness. Mm. The, the willingness of Mary, the let it be. What you see in the pseudo-saint is willfulness, you know. Uh, pushing reality, pushing the river. And it looks heroic, it w- looks generous-hearted, it looks hard-working. Uh, uh, we all hide behind that, I'm hard-working. And because I'm working hard for the cause, I'm the better, uh, you know, staff member. Maybe not. If you never see willingness, willingness to admit your own fault, willingness to go the extra mile outside of your comfort zone. You have every reason to mistrust where the per, whether the person is led by the Spirit. Wow, yeah. yeah it sounds almost too simple, but it's true. That's so helpful and mm. a very helpful frame for us as we wrap up this conversation on values to orient ourselves toward a willingness as opposed to a willfulness. Willfulness. To soften to the work mm. of that's being done unto us, in Are a way. You, and uh, to us and through us. And yes. through us, as opposed mm-hmm. to thinking that this is something we have to push yeah. upriver. You don't have to push anything. You just, mm. You're an allower. Mm. Uh, you allow yourself to be used, and you allow yourself to be a conduit. Mm-hmm. And that's very different than making it happen. Right. Yeah. It's a completely different energy. So I wonder, Richard. Hmm. Oh, in the last week. Here comes the last question. It's your gauntlet. Give it to me. Maybe I'll think of it. It's your gauntlet. But uh, this this shift, I'm loving the shift from willfulness to willingness. Yeah, it works. It really works. It's true. So where have you experienced that shift in your life this week in a concrete way, where did you feel your heart soften? Maybe some humor around uh, your own humanity emerge and okay. just a shift in your orientation to let it be. I came back from the 4.30 Parish Mass on Saturday feeling quite good <laughs> about my excellent homily on the prodigal <laughs> son. And uh, Corey's going to put it online very soon. Um, but, you know, because of all the meds I'm on, I was feeling so tired. I just wanted to rush to my house and get in my chair and fall asleep. Uh, and I walked through the little uh, parish grounds, and, oh, there's a fiesta going on, you know, with booths selling hamburgers and my, uh, loud sounds coming through my window. I said, oh, Jesus, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> Why don't they go somewhere else? A one's worst nightmare, <laughs> yeah. a street party. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I asked somebody, what's this mon- money raiser for? Oh, these are the poor people who, um, who made it through the border. 
and who can't pay their uh, bonds. And they're here to sell hamburgers and hot dogs and little rides. I said, oh, my God. Uh, you know, it's just all I had to do is change my attitude toward instead of I want a place of quiet now <laughs> so I can go to sleep. And I couldn't go to sleep anyway, thinking these wonderful people are out there. Uh, but I had to change to a, a willingness to say, this is really good. This is what I say I'm for. And it's come to my house. And, and I just preached on the prodigal son, the father running to the house, you know, or, and bringing me back to the house. And there it was happening in my own backyard. So, um, yeah, I still, to, be, to finish the story, I still took my little nap in my chair, but Elias took Opie out on the leash to give some money to these uh, folks. So I was able to be both willful and willing. <laughs> I guess, I guess, but it worked. Uh, fully human. Yeah, fully the human. The nap was calling. And here are a couple of voicemails from our listeners. Sixteen years ago, my wife Sandy, who I shared my, my life with for 25 years, suddenly died. We never had an opportunity to say goodbye. It was a huge loss. But in our time together, we grew very, grew from being very good friends to being soulmates. And I also realized that God had privileged me with the opportunity to share my life with a living saint, that is, a person who has a boundless heart and a kind spirit. The night following her death, she visited me as I slept. She leaned over my bed and she kissed me. It's the only visual encounter that I've had with her since her death, although I constantly feel her presence around me. And oh, how I wish I could hold her and kiss her again. As a cradle Catholic, I was taught that our bodies and souls will be reunited during the second coming. I'm curious to know Father Rohr's thoughts on this core principle of Christianity that is, the reuniting of body and soul, as described in Matthew 27, Revelation 20, and other parts of the Bible, and how it aligns with the universal Christ. Thank you for your time, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share my question with you. What a mature, intelligent statement. Uh, we're all impressed already just hearing you speak. And a Catholic that knows his scriptures, besides. <laughs> Good for you. The belief of mainline Christianity since the early creeds has been that God is saving our physicality somehow, not just our soul, which is the way we talked. And that's what we mean when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, what exactly that body is seems to be a subtle body. And we see that revealed in all the resurrection accounts uh, of Jesus. He's in two places at once. He walks through doors. And yet he eats fish. He has breakfast. So there's physicality, but it's a different kind of physicality. 
Now what you experienced, I can't tell you how common it is, and it's usually, I hate to create expectations and disappointment in people, but it's usually within the first 24 to 36 hours. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But where people will have a very concrete, like after my grandmother died, I swear, uh, as I was falling asleep, and you always say, oh, that was your imagination. But I heard in her voice her say, Dickie. <laughs> That's what they all called me. And I just woke up and I, I said, yes, nothing more. But it, it was a stating of I, I'm on the other side and whatever the other side is. So I think you have no reason to doubt your experience and every reason to trust it. Your love has built that bridge and you clearly loved her very much and God gave you a way to say uh, goodbye to her. Maybe indirectly, but the contact was, was re-ignited, uh, if I can put it that way. So, um, uh, did, did he say he saw? He didn't say he saw. In a dream. In a dream, in a dream. he did see. In a, and of course, we never know what a dream is. What, uh -huh. But there was, which we would call an apparition. So, I don't think you have any reason to doubt it. Uh, but it's always... Like once they're on the other side, they can only give us a taste. They never seem to have the freedom to tell us, well, this is what's going to happen, or, uh, or here's exactly where I am. Just a taste of hope that I know many people hold on to for the rest of their life. Yeah. So it's all we really need. But again, you said it so well. Thank you. Right. Hello, this is Andreas from Germany. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for the podcast, uh, the series of uh, which have helped me a lot for more than 10 years now with uh, helping, uh, with widening and structuring my Christian belief system. Still, I think there should be some room for critics, maybe an episode of criticism uh, towards uh, the, the series. What I like a lot about the series is the non-dualistic approach and the contemplative approach. Still, I think um, there's quite a few um, dualistic thinking that I perceive, at least in the podcast, uh, some we against them, we in the center against outside, uh, we the progressives against the conservatives, um, like Richard and Bree, praise uh, each other's remarks uh, a lot in the podcast. Uh, I, I like both remarks of, of both, of all three people, but still um, there's a lot of positive feedback inside and uh, negative feedback to the outside. Outside uh, sometimes are stated by Richard, are the homophobes, the racists, conservatives, people on lower stages. So I see the danger that people who criticize are put on lower stages. My question is, do you see the danger as well that the ego is using the theory of non-dualistic thinking for dualistic thinking? What you're stating is a very real possibility. And if we failed in that, I'm, we ask for your forgiveness. But here's what the problem. It's always a problem. 
First, you have to succeed at dualistic clarity. So what you want to look at is the energy that the person does it with. Is it hateful? Is it antagonistic? Is it the stirring up of, of mistrust? Or is it simply stating what, what has to be stated? Otherwise, we get into what our president said in regard to the white nationalist march in Virginia. Well, there were good people on both sides. We, we can't settle for that. We have to say this is maturity and this is immaturity. Now, that doesn't mean that your ego can't misuse that by placing yourself on the mature side. But let's hope Bree and I were not doing that. If we were, we ask your forgiveness. But we'd be really ir- irresponsible if we'd jump over dualistic clarity, the making of any appropriate critiques in the name of non-dual mystical union. Uh, basically, I've seen that in very immature people who, uh, who want to wear the hat of the mystic or the saint but are pretty fuzzy in their thinking. And, uh, you know, it's probably good and significant that you as a German and me as a German-American bring this up because our ethnic group is known for overdoing this critical thinking. And so it's good you're trying to uh, warn yourself against it. I hope the energy that we set it with uh, was still respectful and loving. If not, I'm sure Bree and I would both say we're sorry. That is never our intent. But if you can balance uh, dualistic with non-dual in the response, you've got the best of both worlds. And just to give us a scriptural backup, Remember how often Jesus, especially in regard to issues of the poor and justice, is very dualistic. You cannot serve God and mammon. He is very judgmental, if I can use that word. Uh, What is he doing when he calls the uh, religious officials whitened sepulchers? (laughs) Oh my gosh. When, When it's... Uh, blatant narcissism, oppression, domination. Jesus names it. But then he gives his disciples no freedom to, uh, to react against such people in a violent or hateful way. I admit it's subtle. But uh, you're, you ask the question in a subtle and kind way. Mm-hmm. So I think you'll get it. A, f- a friend of mine recently wrote his master's thesis on the, the distinction between critique and contempt. Oh, go ahead. And oh. I, I thought this, he was using Fannie Lou Hamer as an example of saying there is a place for, for holy critique. Yes. And, and for, for naming prophetically with courage. That's hey, right. this is not right. That's right. Um, but there's a difference between saying that and then condemning people with contempt and saying you are you know this that and that you you are uh almost like where we talked about with the values where we remove the sacred heart 
if, mm. if we're not seeing each other with the sacred heart, then our critique can easily turn into contempt. But I, I also want to say, I That's hope that we, well I hope, said. I hope mm. we've not done that. I hope that mm. in, in mm. our voicing of things that feel like they need to be named, I hope that we've done so with deep respect for the sacred heart in everyone. Mm. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. It's the risk of telling the truth, right? Sometimes right. said with, with love and, and uh, sometimes said just because it's, it's what's right in front of us and, and it doesn't, that love doesn't feel expressed. And Andreas, since you didn't name me, you know, I can only tell that, uh, that I must be the non-dual mystic teacher here. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just you're, receive that as a compliment. You're so the deep out to you. you have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> like kid. Okay. Hi, this is Thomas from San Jose. And I've really been enjoying the podcast, and I have a question about uh, this concern or this point that Richard makes a lot about being outside the system. He wrote in a recent uh, meditation about Francis and Claire placing themselves outside the system of not just social production and consumption, but ecclesiastical too. Um, So... And then he writes, whoever is paying our bills, giving us security, determines what we can and cannot say. Um, Yeah, I wonder if, uh, I've never heard Richard address this, but this question of how do we do that, you know, in a practical way? It seems like priests and religious have a bit of a safety net. They can rely on their order, you know, whereas uh, people struggling in the world and trying to raise a family uh, have it pretty difficult, and there's a deep fear about how can I survive if I live outside the system? If I live outside the system, where where am I going to go? I know there is the radical calling of the gospel, which Francis and Claire lived incredibly well, but that seems unrealistic for most people to just walk away from society. So I'm wondering if you could give us some practical ex- examples of this. Thank you very much. So well asked again. Thank you. My, we gather mature people. That's beautiful. Thomas, uh, you know, please don't hear me pushing my writings, but after I finished The Universal Christ, and I think that's what you might be quoting, I realized there was one idea I led into but did not develop. So I've already uh, created a little monograph. It's less than 100 pages, and it's entitled, What Do We Do With Evil?, And there I have several chapters devoted to what I hope is your question. And I call it a stance of non-enthrallment, non-seduction, non-idolatry. In other words, it used to be summed up in the phrase, in the world but not of the world, in a very real way that you know it is the system, you know it's self-serving, If you don't know that and see the many ways that you're enthralled by the money system, the banking system, the war system, the penal system, the health system, pick any of them. Uh, If you don't bring a critical mind to it, you will be enthralled. You will be on bended knee before, isn't this wonderful? And then it isn't long before it's, well, we alone deserve it. (laughs) Let's take the healthcare system. What what, um, you and I maybe pay three 
to $30,000 for. Here we cross the border into Juarez and we can pay $30 for. It's just, how did that happen? Such a huge disparity. Because we were told that this was something uh, too big to fail, beyond criticism, outside the realm of competition. Anything outside the realm of competition will, we will soon be enthralled with because we're totally dependent upon it. And uh, that's why most governments, let's go to that highest level, most governments are outside the realm of competition till the next election, you understand? That's why so many people worldwide are angry at their government. And it's half true. Maybe more more than half true. Uh, I, I think of it when I go to the post office here, and uh, which is a governmental agency, and have to wait in a line of 25 people. There's about six windows, and sometimes there's one employee at one window. Where are they, you know? And they're walking around in the back, uh, seemingly uncaring about uh, the the customer. If they were a for-profit organization, they could never operate that way. So, uh, but because we're, well, this is government, we got to put up with it. That's the trap I think a lot of people feel caught in. Once you're not enthralled with the government maybe you're able to offer some sincere critique. Uh, Could I talk to the manager here? Uh, Are you serving us? I've tried here, uh, coming to this particular post office for 30 years, and they'll always say, um, oh, we're understaffed today. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, but I bite my lip. Uh, Are you understaffed every day? (laughs) Uh, No... For-profit organization could get away with this. So I'm just, you asked for living examples. Uh, when anything is, is uncriticizable, I know that's not a good English word, it will soon become what Paul would call demonic. If it's uncriticizable, it is not long before it becomes what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex that has a life of its own, an energy of its own, a power of its own, what Walter Wink calls a domination system. So they all move in that direction. Uh, There's no doubting it. All we can do is withdraw our allegiance in little symbolic ways and keep our identity and our loyalty to one Lord before us, It's not the U.S. government. It's not the U.S. military. Just go through the whole list. It's not the our healthcare system, which we now know is what is number. Nowhere near the top. Nowhere near the top. That's about yeah. And here we are, the richest country in the world, and we can't do any better than this. That, that feels really practical, though, to say well, just to Thank pay you. attention to where our loyalty is yeah. so that, that the issue isn't so much that we're, you know, those of us who are in the first half of life who need to have a job and have to, you know, pay our bills and, and sustain our families. That doesn't mean that we're somehow 
supporting the system. Mm. But what we can do is to pay attention to where our loyalties are. Are we are we going along with the fallacy of upward mobility? Mm. Are we trying to have more and more stuff? And you know, something that you've <coughs> said, me. Paul, is mm. that you ask like that question of how what's the one percent change I can make today? Mm. You know, oh, it brings lovely. it to like a very practical way of saying, okay, how can we in our own small ways, um, pay attention to not being loyal to the system. That's right. That's right. Put our feet in the right direction and try to slowly Put move our that feet way. Very so good. Not, I yeah. can tell you Ascending, both yeah. struggled with this. Yeah. That's what's necessary, to have struggled with yeah. it. Yeah. And I dare say, in my experience, most Americans, but I bet it's true in most countries, have not struggled with this. Mm. They think these... I was going to say monsters, help me to be kind, Lord, uh, are un, uh, uncriticizable. Right. Because they're inevitable, and we accept their domination, even though they lead to cruel conclusions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no way we can live without them. Mm-hmm. They're too big to fail. And there's so many more now, right? Oh, my gosh, how they've increased. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So did I mention the book, though? Universal Christ. What do we do with evil? Yeah. What, yeah, yeah, what do we do yeah, with yeah, evil? Yeah. So I'm, you don't have to mention it twice. Oh, good, it's off. But have have you been given a copy yet? Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, yes. oh, okay. We studied it, Richard. You yeah. studied it. Oh, I'm, I, I can't wait to get in with uh, living school students. Oh, so. uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is the so for the first two episodes. This is the last question. All right. Hi, Richard. Um, my name is Debbie. Um, could you speak more about including and transcending, um, specifically when it comes to a church community. Like, is it possible for me to go back to my old church where the community is great and I miss them, yet they still believe and teach in the atonement theory and... Bible being inerrant and um, they don't allow women pastors, stuff like that. Like, practically, what would it look like if I were to go back there? Could I be a part of that community and include and transcend where I don't believe that anymore? And yet, I used to believe that stuff and they still do. So, um, I don't know what would it look like practically it when they teach something I don't believe in. I don't want to be divisive. So like what would I do? Would I correct? Would I be silent? Would I try to teach? Like what would that look like? Um thanks and thanks for everything that you do. You asked the question so kindly. Thank you. Yes, I I think the way you include is by forgiveness. It doesn't mean you rejoin, but you live the rest of your life with appreciation for the good elements that church gave you, which is true of every one of us. They taught me this, they taught me this, they taught me this. They seem to have been pretty much behind in regard to this, this, and this. But you can forgive them for that. You don't need to live the rest of your life in resentment or or backstabbing or criticizing. 
It's join the club of imperfection. And God has to push us into the club of imperfection. Because we're all, especially people like us, who, who are concerned about church and gospel and so forth, we're looking to do it right. And which comes very close to being righteous. I don't know how those words are exactly defined, but I, I don't hear any righteousness in the way you ask the question. So you include by forgiving. You know, it's the same thing that we were not prepared to understand when we recognize that some marriages have to agree lovingly, healingly, if that's a word, uh, to separate. That we're not good for one another. We're not helping one another. Uh, now, maybe it isn't a mutual decision in regard to your church, but there's many things that you outgrow, you just do. Now, I know the dangers of pride and superiority in making that judgment, but without it, you will resent your church more and more, and they will resent you because you'll always be bringing up these critical questions. They don't need that every Sunday. And you don't need that every Sunday or Wednesday evening, whatever it might be. So you have to find a bigger field where you can live in a non-reactive way and a faith-filled way without uh, antagonism or without needing to prove your superiority. I think you're already on that track. Mm. I'm really touched by how you brought together that kind of transition from an institution like a church and divorce. Yeah, Because I think they both involve heartbreak mm. and a sense mm. of deep loss mm. and an absence of belonging. And it's painful to all of a sudden realize like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't fit here anymore or this yeah. didn't work. This yeah. relationship didn't yeah. work. And to a certain degree, I think it kind of touches on something we were just talking about, about the difference between contempt, right? Because it's easier to then demonize a whole church and be like, they just don't get it. And I am so evolved. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's easy to do that in heartbreak, too. But there's something about being, like how you said that, welcome to the club of imperfection. Like, okay, it just didn't work. I'm not there anymore. My, I, I've, I've been grown into new ideas and new perspectives. That doesn't mean that everybody who goes there is wrong or wrong ignorant. Or immature or whatever. But that you can bless <clears throat> it, just as you bless, you bless know, the dissolution That's of a, a marriage word, and say, yes. I've learned, I've grown, I am irrevocably changed through this relationship. I bless it. Now we move on to the future. And thank you for connecting that. That's Mm, good. It's yeah. helpful because I think many of us have been badly burned by institutional church, and there's still yeah. a lot of far too and, many and heartbreak there, and so unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. But it, again, it's people have to be taught how to do such things, and we just don't get that kind of teaching. Mm-hmm. Everything is hold on to the ideal at all costs, yeah. even when it is no longer the ideal. The ideal would be to forgive and bless. And heal one another. Yeah. That would be the ideal. That's what I love about that posture of forgiveness, not just of, of granting it towards others, giving it to others, but also just 
the recognition of my own neediness of forgiveness. And when have I needed forgiveness but unable to see? Yeah. When have I been a part of a community that I've hurt mm. but unable mm. to see? And then also how this mm. plays throughout life, that it, it, is, it is the risk of community and of this, this path. Um, so thank you, Richard. You're welcome. Thank you. Oh, I only learn right. these things by trial and error. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.